Um, I don't know if you've come across a lady called Brené Brown, who's done a whole load of stuff on... Um, she's got a thing on uh, Netflix, and she's, she's a, kind of like a sensation on YouTube and uh, things like that. She did a talk for TED once on vulnerability that's been viewed by about uh, 10 million people. And she's written books as well. And some of her stuff I've read, and it's really, really helpful. And one of the things that I came across a little while ago in one of her books is she's kind of given people advice about how to function well in relationships. And I, always, I need all the help I can get on that. So uh, I always read those bits carefully. And one of the things that she says is sometimes um, what we do without realizing it is something happens and um, we, we, we react to it by telling ourselves a story, basically. We make up a story in our heads to explain and to contextualize what's going on. So to give you an example, let's say you turn up at work and your boss is, you know, really kind of like mean to you, really nasty to you. And, and what you can do as a, re, as a result of that is you can start to tell yourself a story, often subconsciously, oh, it's because of that thing two weeks ago where I didn't go to his, you know, birthday cake thing and, and sort of like he's internalized the pain of that and it's coming out of me now. Or you begin to tell yourself a story. It may be that, um, you go to a party and someone in the party, you say, hi, hi how are you doing? And they blank you. And, um, and then you can begin to tell yourself this whole story about what's happened there and why is that. And it's because they don't really like me and they haven't really liked me uh, for a long time. And this is the reason that they don't like me. And, and actually the reality could just be they didn't see you. Or the reality could be they're having a really hard day and you know they've just had a real tough day at work and so they're just not feeling it or whatever. But you can begin to tell yourself a story And what Brené Brown was saying is actually a really helpful thing to do when we find ourselves in situations where we're explaining another person's behavior, but it's all assumption because we don't actually know. It it can be to, to have a conversation, to choose to have the conversation and to begin it with that phrase, the story I'm telling myself is... And so she gives this example of um, a time when she's on holiday with her husband, and uh, they've been married for like 25 years. They go on to, to this lake every year, and they swim across it. And they're in the water, and they're swimming. And she's not really like, you know, naturally a particularly touchy-feely, I'm going to be vulnerable with you type person. But she's an expert on vulnerability, so she tries to force herself to do it sometimes. And she says, they're in the water swimming. And she thought, it was like, I'm, I just, I'm going to have a moment with my husband, Steve. So she just looks at him, you know, as they sort of like tread water for a minute somewhere. And she just says, I just really love you, Steve. I just really love you. And he just sort of grunts and then carries on doing the front crawl. And she's really annoyed, right? She is like, oh my, I just I felt like I was putting myself out there. He didn't respond. Um, and they carry on swimming. As she swings, she's like, oh, no, I'm going to have another go. I'm, gonna, I'm just going to do this again. So, so they get to another part of the lake where they heads pop up, and, and she tries it again. So she says to him, Steve, I just feel so close to you right now in this moment. And he just sort of like looks blankly at her, and then he just carries on doing the front crawl. So this is like, she is furious at this stage. And so they're swimming back to, to the, where they started. And she, she starts to go over in her head all the reasons why he's no longer in love with her. And uh, one is, she's like, oh man, he hasn't seen me in a swimming costume for a little while. And, you know, maybe I don't look as good as I used to do when we got married and, and uh, blah, blah, blah. She starts telling herself this whole story. But because she's been studying this, she recognizes that she's swimming what she's doing in the moment. And so she decides, she's like, this could go one of two ways as she's doing the front court. It could go, we get back to the dock and I am like a total cow to him and uh, he doesn't understand why and then he storms off and then I storm off and it all spirals down for the rest of the holiday. Or I could just, I could just 
put myself out there a bit and try and just see what's going on. So, so they, they get to the edge of the water and, and she just looks at him and she says, look, Steve, the story I'm telling myself, I need to say this to you, the story I'm telling myself right now in this moment is that you don't find me attractive anymore. And it's because, you know, we've been married all these years and this isn't what it used to be and all of that stuff. And she, she just tells him, this is how I'm feeling. And uh, she says, I just tried a couple of points in the lake to reach out to you and you just shut me down. And, um, you know, I'm just, that's what I'm telling myself. And he's shocked. He's totally shocked. And he says, Brené, I didn't even realize that you were trying to reach out to me. Um, I've just been in that lake trying not to have a panic attack. And then he explains, last night I had a horrible dream where one of us got hit by a speedboat or something like that when we were in the lake. And so halfway across the lake, I started to feel like I was going to have a panic attack. And it was all I could do to keep going. And I wanted to say to you, but the story I was telling myself is, if I admit that weakness, she won't respect me anymore. So I'm not going to say. And so they end up having this really deep, profound conversation. And I remember being struck by that and thinking, that's such a helpful way to approach things that are really quite, sometimes quite difficult and quite um, tricky conversations. I'm going to use it later over lunch with Beth, where I'm going to say something like, the story I'm telling myself is that you told the entire 9am congregation that I had diarrhea and vomiting because you wanted to humiliate me. What's your version of what happened there? Um, <laughs> And so it's, it's like, it's a way of engaging with a really difficult thing, but maybe not so confrontationally that can be, um, you know, that's not always fruitful because then you just end up exploding each other. And this, this tool's helpful in our relationships with one another, but I also want to suggest this morning, it can be helpful to bring that into um, how we interact in our relationship with God. And I suspect I'm not the only one who turns up to church sometimes or who goes through a week and my, my, instant response to coming near to God is not always one of excitement and joy and I bet he can't wait he's more excited than I am to hang out together um, I think I like a lot of uh, a lot of us here probably sometimes I struggle with guilt and condemnation and a feeling of shame and so what can happen is I come near to God with this vague sense of he doesn't really want to know me and um, what, what happens if we keep going along in our relationship with God like that for a while, what happens is we begin to think that that's normal. And so we just ignore it and we think, yeah, well, this is what it feels like to be a Christian, slightly guilty and slightly ashamed every time I come near God. And, um, and actually what I want to suggest is that's not at all how it's meant to be. And if we think that's normal, it's because we don't understand what, what the Bible presents to us as normal. And so rather than continuing to live with this, this sense of shame and this sense of guilt when we draw near to God, how about we stop for a minute? How about we take a step back? And how about we try and drill down into it and see, hang on a second, what is going on here? And this thing about the story I'm telling myself is, can be helpful. And so if we were to try and pin down, this is a vague thing for me, but I want to nail it down to something specific. I'll reflect for a little bit and then I'll fill in the blank. Some of us um, would say, the story I'm telling myself, God, is that you don't like me because of what I used to do in the past. And that I've got some stuff in my history that you'll never really let go of. Like I, I get you forgiven me, I get I'm accepted, but the story I'm telling myself is you don't like me very much. For others of us, uh, we might say the story I tell myself, God, and maybe this explains my feelings when I come near to you sometimes, the story I'm telling myself is that you're, you're, I'm a disappointment to you. 
that I don't live up to the standard of, of that Christian over there and say so that, you know, you, you're kind of like, you're disappointed by my life. The story I'm telling myself is that uh, because I'm no good at telling people about you um, and I feel that keenly, you're just not that, you're just not that into me. The story I tell myself is that you're frustrated with me. Like you love me, but you're frustrated with me because the number of times I've tried to do this, that or the other, to step out in faith, to be bold, to pray, to be generous, and I fail and I fall on my face. You're just, you just had it up to here. You've been put up with, putting up with me for 45 years of this. And the story I'm telling myself is anyone would give up after a while and you're definitely going to have given up on me. So it's actually, it can be a helpful first step to say, okay, what is the story that I'm telling myself that explains these feelings that I'm having? Here's the, here's the next step, to not dismiss that. Um, and that's tempting to do, particularly if we're not like feelings people. Um, and I am in that category. I operate mainly from my head. You know, there'll be some of us here that when you hear a talk that says, oh, we should all finish the sentence, the story I'm telling myself, you are struggling not to throw up in your mouth. It's like, that's just not how I work. But I'd encourage us to think twice before we just dismiss this. Because... Um, let's say you're talking to a colleague at work and the two of you are just chatting in the kitchen and, and they, they're telling you about their relationship with their partner and they say, yeah, it's fine, it's, you know, it's okay, but actually quite a lot of the time I feel like they despise me. But it's not a big deal. And then they carry on chatting. Now, depending on um, my friendship with that person, I might have to go, whoa, let's just backtrack just a couple of minutes. You just said a lot of the time you feel like they despise you. So whether they are despising you or whether that's just something that you're feeling and perceiving, I want to suggest that that is a big deal. That simply to say, I feel this, but it's not a big deal and dismiss it and carry on, that's not a wise thing to do. The wise thing to do would be to say, this is what I'm feeling. And so I'm going to explore that and I'm going to press into that because perhaps if I do, there's freedom on the other side of it. So the story I tell myself is, you're judging me and you don't like what you see. The story I'm telling myself is you're distant and you're not interested. Whatever it is, that's the story we tell ourselves. Then the next step, if that's where we're at, is to, I think, do what Brené Brown suggests we do with people, which is to come to God and say, hey, this is how I see it. Is that true? Is that reality? Or, or is there something else? Is there a, have you got another perspective on this? And what we'll find when we read the New Testament for an answer to that question is that, yes, God does have another perspective on it. And a great place to go are the stories of Jesus, which reshape um, our way of looking at God and our way of understanding him. And I want to, um, just for the second half of this talk, look at one of the stories Jesus tells that gives us a picture uh, of God and who he is. And so if you've been a Christian for more than a couple of weeks, you may well have come across this story. It's one of Jesus' most famous. It's called uh, often the parable of the prodigal son. But really, it should be called the parable of the loving father because the, main, uh, the central figure in this whole story is the father. And so I'm going to read it to you now and then I'm going to um, share a few thoughts on it. Luke chapter 15, verse 1 says this. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering round to hear Jesus. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. They don't like the fact that Jesus hangs around with all these people that don't have their lives sorted. And so Jesus tells them three stories. And the point of the stories is to communicate the depth of God's love for people who haven't got it all together. 
So he tells a story about a, a shepherd who loses a sheep. He tells a story about a woman who loses a coin. But those two stories, profound though they are, are not enough for him. Uh, and so he goes on to tell a story about family breakdown and what happens. And this is it. Uh, Luke chapter 15, verse 11. Jesus continued, There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. After he'd spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his fields to feed his pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am, starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and went to his father. But when he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kid it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. The elder brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him, but he answered his father, look. All these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders, yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours who has squandered your property with prostitutes comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him? My son, the father said, you are always with me and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And I want to suggest that that story and this picture that Jesus paints for us of God as our Father is a profound answer to that question. The story I'm telling myself, God, is this What do you think? And is that true? Uh, I find it amazing, and if you're not a Christian, this is one of the things that really got me, to be honest, that the God of the universe could reveal himself to be anything, and he chooses to reveal himself to be a father. And if I was his advisor back in the day when he was making, I don't know if he made a decision for that, but if I was giving him advice, I would have said, well, I'm not sure that's a good idea. You know, people grow up with pretty bad dads. People grow up with pretty broken relationships with their own dad. So if you're saying you're a father, what's going to happen is they're going to bring all that baggage that they associate with that relationship into their relationship with you. Maybe you could choose a different word. Maybe you could reveal yourself in a more helpful way. But God decided it was worth the risk. 
And what he did is he revealed himself to be our father. He told us we were going to be adopted as his kids. And then what he does is he sets, apart, sets about doing, doing the, the hard yards of defining for us what he means when he says to us, I'm your father. And the type of father that he is going to be. And in the story of the man with two sons, uh, the story that we just read, you see the story of God as a father. And so we get to gauge his reaction to us when we come to him. So first of all, we can look at the, the younger brother and what he does. You know, you might have heard this if you've heard stories on this, uh, talks on this parable before. But when the younger son goes to the dad and says, hey, I want my share of the inheritance now. That's basically like saying, I wish you were dead so I could have all the money. You know, can you imagine? I, I can't, if I rang my dad up, my parents have sort of, you know, they, they Obviously, they had me, and then they, they looked after me as a kid, and I know how hard work that can be now. And, and then, you know, they, they looked after me as a teenager, which I suspect was even harder work, and they spent loads of money just trying to feed me and clothe me. And then they went to university, and they thought their job was done, but I kept ringing them up for more money, and they gave me more money. You know, they, they really have sacrificed their lives to kind of like to make mine as good as it could possibly have been. Imagine now if I ring up my dad and say, hey, dad, it's really inconvenient to me that you are still alive because I'm kind of hanging in there for you to die. Then we can sell your house. Then I'll be able to buy a house. So um, given that you're not going to die imminently, would it be possible for you to just downsize your house now and give me all the money that I would get when you died now? That's what the younger son does. And if, if you were listening to that in that culture, and even if you were listening to that today, you would think the dad would say, no, stuff you. I can't believe you're even having this conversation with me. But instead, what the father does is he lets, lets it go. So he sells some of his property. It means he drops in social status in that community. He's no longer living in the biggest house on the street. Gives the money to his son, and his son goes off. And the tendency of the younger son is towards awayness from his father. So he'll go to a distant country because he wants to distance himself. And then what he does is he immerses himself in a lifestyle that's the opposite of the one he knows his father has got for him. And then even when he runs out of money, he doesn't think, do you know what? I'm going to go home because he's got that persistent, I, I want to be away. So even when he runs out of money, he tries to find a way to make a life for himself by, by feeding the pigs. And it's only when he hits rock bottom that he comes to his senses and thinks, do you know what? I might need to turn around and go back. It's that tendency to awareness that we can relate to. So probably not many of us have done something as extreme as I'm going to rob my parents and spend their money on prostitutes when I go to Las Vegas. We probably haven't got that as a story, but we do each have a story of drifting away from God. And the way that it manifests itself in our lives is we go looking for joy, looking for pleasure, looking for peace in a place that's not him. And gradually what happens over the years is we discover that that doesn't satisfy. We find out that it's a hollow promise. And then what we can do is we can think, well, I heard about God when I was a kid or someone told me about him at work or something. I'm going to try him out and we come back. But what we do is we bring back all those mistakes that still haunt us. 
And we bring back all those scars that we can't seem to rub off of our skin or of our soul. We bring it all back with us. We bring back all the shame. And although people might explain the gospel to us time and time again, to the point where we're actually willing to say, okay, he accepts me. Okay, I'm in. We still really actually deep down feel like we got in on a technicality because God is God. And although we're back, we are no longer worthy and we never have been perhaps, to be called a daughter or to be called a son. And so we live near him and we live in his house, but in our hearts we stay away. Because though we trust that he'll let us in, we don't trust enough to believe that he actually loves us. And so Jesus is trying to come after that and what he, what he gives us is this picture of how the, how the dad responds to someone who's lived a life like that. So, the, the, you know, I just read it to you. The father runs out. And I picture it a bit like this. Imagine I did say to my dad, I want all your money and I want it now. And then he gave me the money. And then I did go to Vegas. And I spent it all on prostitutes and everything else. And then at the end of it, I was like, this is, you know what? I've, I've realized I've made a terrible mistake here. What I might do, because I would be too ashamed too embarrassed to ring my dad, I would probably send him a message on Facebook or something. And I would say, hey dad, listen, I know I did bad and I'm not expecting our relationship to ever be the same. Um, But I was just wondering if I could even just come back and just be around you. Um, And I'm going to be back in the UK on this date And I don't want to put us in an awkward situation. So if you're not interested, fine. But if you are interested, maybe you could leave a signal for me or something, you know, outside the house so I don't have to cause this awkwardness. Maybe you could just tie a balloon or something to the gate so that when I get there, I know, oh, that's that's the signal. I can go and knock on the door. And you're at least interested in having a functional conversation with me. You know, imagine I did that. and And then I flew back not knowing his response. And then I got in a taxi from the airport and I'm, and I'm driving through Watford and my stomach is churning as it gets to the point where we're about to turn into my road because I'm like, this is it. Like, you know, if, if there's a balloon there, then, then maybe there's something we can salvage from this, even though it won't ever be the same. But if there's not, then he's never going to see me again and I'm never going to see him. Like, I've got all that emotion going on. And then imagine I turn the corner and literally the house is covered in balloons and they're like everywhere, tied to every bit of surface. And then my dad is not just kind of like in the house, but he's standing at the edge of the street waiting for the taxi and he's got balloons clutched in both his fists and then imagine as the car pulls up he legs it towards me he throws the balloons in the air he grabs me out of the taxi he starts snogging my face and I start my little speech about dad I'm really sorry that I spent all your money on prostitutes and he's like doesn't even listen to me he just turns around and yells at everybody in the house he's here he's here start the music get the stake out like he's arrived and then he, he pulls me into the house shouting about my future and how promising it's going to be that's what happens with, with, the, with the prodigal. That's what happens with the son who comes home. And so there are words that we would use to describe a father like this. Here's one of them. Generous. He doesn't just forgive. He gives on top of that. I'll give you my forgiveness. Let me also give you a cow. Let me also give you a robe. Let me also give you a ring. Let me also give you some sandals. Let me, you know, let me throw you a party. Eager. He's keen. 
15, he runs towards him, we're told. In that culture, the patriarchal members of the family, like the granddaddies, do not run anywhere. It's considered undignified. Even today, to be keen is considered undignified. Don't be too keen. but, But he runs towards him. He was wearing a skirt as well. So think about not just a man, but a man running in a skirt. Like, it's, it's, it's humiliating, but he's got no pride. He doesn't care. He just throws himself at him. Another word that I used to describe this father is emotional. This is not stiff upper lip. Okay, I forgive you and I love you. Now come into the house and don't do it again. This is like I'm, I'm pouring, I'm pouring, the, I fall around your neck is the word that it says there and I'm kissing you. Another word that would describe this father, joyous. He is joyous. Even as the woman who finds her coin calls the neighbours for the party and says, come rejoice with me. Even as the shepherd's like, woohoo, I found my sheep. Like that doesn't compare to the dad who's got his kid back. He's like, everybody, come around. He's coming home. He's coming home. Like in a small town, they would know the humiliation this son has caused him. They'd be turning to each other as they're walking to the party being like, why are we celebrating this kid coming back again? Wasn't he the one that did everything? But the father's joyous and he won't be deterred. Later he says to the older brother, we had to celebrate. I just cannot help myself. It is party time. Another word that you use to describe this father is he declares truth over his son. You know, so the son's standing there being like, I'm not worthy. I'm not worthy. I'm not worthy. And do you know what the father's saying? No, you were dead. Now you're alive again. You were lost. Now you're found. The story I'm telling myself is that you're distant from me. The story I'm telling myself is, I've done things and you'll forgive me, but you won't ever really like me. This is the story that Jesus is saying is the reality. And the Pharisees, you know, they're, they're the ones that kind of trigger the story because they're, they're saying, oh, this guy, you know, God doesn't really like to hang out with people who are broken. He doesn't like to hang out with people who haven't got it all together. And so Jesus is telling them that story to to make it clear that actually God loves people who are broken, loves people who haven't got it all together. But, but, But then he goes on, and the older brother is really the character that kind of represents the Pharisee in the story. So uh, the older brother, he, he's angry and he's cross and he's not happy about this. And what's fascinating about the older brother is that the younger son goes away from home and gets lost. The older brother never leaves home, but he also gets lost. His relationship with his dad is, is not what it should be. There's nowhere in the story, fascinating, where he calls him father. Nowhere where the older brother uses the word father. Because as far as he's concerned, and we get the evidence from it from what he says, this is a functioning, working relationship, and we're equals. And listen, I've put in my hours, and I've been slaving away, never done anything wrong, and you haven't fulfilled your end of the bargain. You haven't done your side of it. Sin is a bit like a disease. And, uh, and some diseases, when you get them, they're obvious. Diarrhea and vomiting, case in point. But other diseases you can have, and they're sometimes even more deadly, but you can have them and carry them for years, never knowing that you've got them. Cancer being the classic example. And some sin is obvious. You know, the younger brother, it was pretty obvious, certainly to everybody else, and eventually to him, that he, he was making some terrible decisions, and he was living a life that he shouldn't have lived. But the real danger is not the sin of the younger brother, but the sin of the older. And the signs that we have older brotheritis tend to be, I see these in my own soul because this is the son that I relate to most, anger, resentment, 
a tendency to compare ourselves to other people and feel competitive or superior. Um, Bitterness. Ultimately, elder brothers believe that if you live a good life, you deserve a good life from God. Uh, They'll see Jesus as an inspiration, but not as a savior. And uh, what I'm expecting as I read this, and I'm like, oh my word, the older brother's like a mirror to me. What I'm expecting then is the father, because Jesus is telling the story partly for the benefit of the Pharisees, the father to go out and to sort the older brother out. I mean, to give him a proper telling off. How can you, older brother, treat your brother like this? You're self-righteous. You're judgmental. You know, you don't understand grace. You don't understand any of it. Like, that's what I'm expecting the father to treat the older brother like. And do you know what the story I tell myself is? I'm too proud for him to love because I am proud. I'm too self-righteous for him to love because I can be self-righteous. I'm too judgmental of other people. So then what I begin to believe is if I can stop being proud, then he'll love me. If I can stop judging everybody around me, then he'll love me. If I can become a little less arrogant and self-righteous, then my God will love me. That's just a different version of exactly the same story. If I can be different, then you'll love me. What kills me is the father goes out to the older brother, not to tell him off and to say, you stop being pharisaical and proud. He doesn't do that. The older brother has his rant. Let's it all out there. Says some terrible things. And then the father, it's like he doesn't even hear the older brother's speech. He doesn't respond to anything the older brother says. He just says to him, and the word in the Greek is, is the equivalent of my boy. My boy. And then he says, everything I've got is yours. You're always with me. What are you talking about? Of course we celebrated your brother. What are you talking about? And the father responds to those of us who, like, we're the older brother with exactly the same compassion And exactly the same love as he does for those of us who've ended up feeling like the younger one. The story I'm telling myself is, when I'm different, you'll love me. (laughs) He loves us in our pride, even. He loves us in our arrogance. He loves us in our attempt to control him. And when we begin to get that this is the story and this is the reality of it, and it's a reality that's told not just in the words of Jesus, but through the actions of Jesus on a cross, when we begin to come again and again to the fact that this is a reality to us, then it does change the way that we relate to God. And I finish with this. It creates a security for us in our relationship with him. Um, My oldest son is four, Josiah. And uh, he is... uh, He's so gorgeous. Um, But one of the things that we love to do is we love to play board games. And Josiah always beats me at the board games, mainly because I let him beat me. But uh, just, just, just yesterday, I was thinking, you know, my parenting skills are really not much to be desired. And I was thinking, oh you know what, I need to raise my children to be resilient because the world is tough and, you know, not everyone lets you win snakes and ladders all the time. So I'm going to teach him to lose a bit so that he, you know, he realizes it's, it's not too bad to lose. So we play the first game of snakes and ladders and he beats me. And, uh, and then we play the second game of snakes and ladders. It comes to a point where I really um, could have thrown the game by pretending I'd landed on a snake. But I decide, no, I'm going to educate my son in the way of the world. And so I... I um, 
kept the six and I rolled it. And then I was like, ha ha, I win. And I, I went to uh, square 100 and he, he took it on the chin. I was really proud of him. And, and then we played a third game of Snakes and Adders and it came to the point where I'm like, hmm, I could again win this game. What shall I do? And I said, no, I'm really going to make this lesson a poignant one. I really want him to learn. Uh, and I want to win. So I, so I rolled the dice again and I won. Again, I was like, ha ha, I won. And then he just, that was it. That was too much for him. So he started to cry and he was not a happy boy. And he started to sulk and pout. And then he stormed out of the, the, the living room and he went up to stairs and slammed his bedroom door. He's four. He's not 14. He's four. And, um, and so I thought, okay, this is, this is a teaching moment. This is a teaching opportunity. Pity the son of a preacher, man. So he's, I thought, I'll give him a five-minute five kind of like calm down, and then I'll go up and we'll have a conversation. So I left him for five minutes, and then I went upstairs, and he's, in his, and he's on his bed, and his top bunk, sort of like not looking happy. So I climbed up onto the bunk, and we're both sitting there with our feet dangling off the edge. And um, I thought, this is a beautiful moment. This is like something in a film, you know? We're both sitting here, and what's going to happen is I'm going to say something really wise and profound, and it's going to be like a life lesson for him, and we're going to giggle together and then some music's going to come on in the background and it's going to feel really special. And so we're sitting there and, and I begin to explain to Josiah, look, life's hard, Joss, and you know what? When you fail sometimes, you've got to get back up and you've got to try again. You can't just like, you know, just expect everything to how it's just, the world doesn't work like that. I'm saying some really deep things to him. What he does in response is he gets both of his ears and he folds them over so he can't <laughs> hear anything. But I'm so set on this being a teaching moment. I'm like, no, 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 I'm going to just talk louder. I know he's enjoying it. I know he's enjoying it. So I carry on explaining to him about why we don't need to, you know. And then what he does is he gets off the bed, I promise you. He goes into his wardrobe and he starts rummaging through his wardrobe. I'm like, what is he doing? What is he looking for? And it turns out he was looking for these fat ear defenders that we keep in there to... Um, sometimes when they come to church to block out the loud music. So that's what he went for. At that point, I thought, okay, this is, this is not gone how I imagined. I'm just going to quietly quit now. And I left the room and left him to sulk for a bit. Um, Beth thought it was hilarious when I tried to explain to her it was a, it was a parenting uh, moment. But um, one of the things I loved as I've, as I've kind of reflected on it, even since yesterday, is I love the fact that my boy knows that I love him to the extent to which he is willing to get ear defenders on while I'm trying to teach him something and just be incredibly rude to me. Like, he knows, he knows that uh, when he takes the ear defenders off, I'll still be there and I'll still want to play snakes and ladders with him. And from now on, I will let him win every single one. Um, but he, there's a security in him because he knows that I'm for him. And... That security is what we're meant to have with our Father in heaven. That's what we're invited to. So it doesn't matter if you have had the worst week. I'm not saying it's okay to just mess up on purpose. That's not what I'm saying. It's not a permission slip. But what I'm saying is it doesn't matter if you turn up here and you feel like this last week's been such, such a write-off. Such a failure. It doesn't matter if you have had some profound revelations recently about how ugly your soul looks and how proud you are and how judgmental you can be. It doesn't matter. When we come, we tell ourselves the story that it does and that it affects his love for us. And that's when we need to come back to the reality of who he is, which is, I love you, because I love you, because I love you. And when we live from that place, there's such a security to have a rant at him, 
to be angry, to cry, to be disappointed, but to do it all in the context of, wow, you bound me together with the blood of your son, and you're my dad, and that's always going to be how it is.